Thank you. Uh, let's begin with a prayer. Uh, dear Lord, into thy hands we commend our spirits. Amen. It's one of my favorite prayers I heard a woman in an AA meeting say once. Every time the phone rings, that's what she says to herself. And then she answers. Into thy hands. You never know what will happen. Uh, or come through the other side of the email box. Um, I'm so glad to be here. It's really nice for me to be home. I got to see the beginning stages of Cranmer House when I was in town very briefly in the fall for a high school youth group retreat that was really, really fun. Um, And uh, it's nice to see, though, that David Tanner's uh, artwork has finally found a home. It looks really good, David. Uh, What did you do with the other 900 paintings? I also want to thank all of you for uh, canceling your plans to go to Savannah for St. Patrick's Day in order to be here. Uh, St. Patrick's Day is a beloved holiday in my family and in my heart. I'm just kidding. I don't really have any feelings about it at all. Um, I want to uh, say that the, the small group ministry of the Cathedral Church of the Advent has been uh, a, um, an inspiration to me for many years, so much so I I preached yesterday and I briefly referenced an event many years ago, 2001, which is a while ago for me when I uh, sat down in a pew for the first time in about seven years of my own volition in church. And that was for me the, the stepping back through the doors of the church and into the Christian faith in a serious and committed way. And it all happened right at the advent. And do you know what I did? About two weeks after that day, I joined a small group. I was in, um, who who was the conductor? The Westerhoff, what was their name? The Westendorf? No, what was uh, the the family? He was the conductor of the symphony? The Westerfields. Do you remember them? They had a a small group in their house, and I was a member of that group uh, for a brief period in 2001, right before I moved to uh, New York City which is where most people go to explore whether or not they have a calling to the ordained priesthood. Uh, I think uh, small group ministry is crucial, especially in the life of a really large parish. And, um, And that's because when you have a lot of people and a lot of members, you desperately need a way to um, create a sense of community and intimacy. And it becomes very hard when you have multiple services, tons and tons of people, tons and tons of turnover, And all of those kinds of things um, make the need for groups like the ones that y'all lead um, absolutely crucial. And so um, I'll talk a little bit about it. But let me open with just a little story that I think sort of, I think describes the importance of uh, small groups and how I sort of understand them to function a little bit in the life of a parish. Uh, There's a story about two uh, lumberjacks who lived in the Pacific Northwest. And one of them was this young, uh, incredibly strong, virile lumberjack who was notorious in the area for being able to fell trees in a single swipe and who was the most impressive lumberjack to come along in that region for years and years and years. But the one thing was he lived in the shadow of the legend of a former lumberjack from many years ago, the sort of Yoda of lumberjacks. And that guy apparently lived way up in the woods on a cabin. And every time this guy sort of 
took steps in the direction of showing his prowess, this other guy came into the conversation. And he started to think, you know, he may have been good, but I'm sure the memory of him is overblown. And he eventually found his way up into the woods and he challenged this old man to a competition to see who could uh, cut down the most trees in three days. And initially, of course, the guy resisted whatever. Finally, he said, all right, young man. And uh, the two of them sort of set up in the woods, kind of near each other, backs to each other, kind of. And um, the, the competition was whoever can uh, cut down the most trees in three days is the best lumberjack ever. So um, buzzer went, and this young guy just started hacking away, and just immediately a tree fell. And, and uh, about 55 minutes to an hour into the um, very beginning of this competition, the young guy looked sort of across the woods, and through the thicket he could see the old Yoda lumberjack just suddenly put his axe down and sit down on a stoop for about five minutes. And then... Uh, Yoda got back up, started chopping again, and about an hour later, he noticed that the lumberjack, the old guy, did the same thing again. He just sort of sat down, took a little break. And the young guy thought, this is a piece of cake. The old man is washed up. And uh, every hour on the hour or so, he would notice that the sound of the hacking of the tree would stop. And at the end of three days, they measured up all of the trees. And to the young guy's total surprise, and he was completely baffled. The older gentleman had cut down twice as many trees. And he went up to him and he said, look, I don't understand how this happened. I'm younger than you. I'm stronger than you. I swung my axe many more times than you. Every time I looked over, you seemed to be taking a break. How did you do it? And the old man said, every time I sat down on that stump, I sharpened my axe. After a while, one of us was chopping with a dull axe. And that is, I think, what is happening in the life of a Christian community when they take time to sort of huddle, as it were, uh, to gather in small groups. Y'all are sharpening your spiritual axes in a way that um, makes a huge difference over time. And the experience of being a member of that kind of a group over um, months, years, uh, especially if you do anything like that for a long period of time, uh, I think it, it is like a kind of snowball effect that is uh, incredibly powerful. And the stories, I'm sure that all of you could tell about your experiences and your groups, each and every one, would both be similarly profound and moving and inspiring and uh, great testaments to God at work in the lives of people here. Uh, but also, um, you know, I think they would be different too. And just each one would have its own intrigue. And um, I am uh, so a big believer in the sharpening of the axe through small group fellowship. And I sort of view, uh, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. What I want to also share is I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not a secret. I wrote a book about it. Um, and uh, that uh, predated my involvement in the church by about four years. And... Um, for me, uh, that was the beginning of my journey. Uh, and uh, about four years into sobriety, that's when the girl I thought was the one dumped me. And that's when I walked into the Advent for the first time and uh, read that prayer of uh, confession. 
We've erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep, followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against thy holy laws. We've left undone those things we ought to have done. We've done those things we ought not to have done. It's just, it's just carved into my heart. And at that moment, the same service that my whole life growing up had been boring and totally irrelevant and made no sense at all in any practical fashion meant everything. I felt understood. The pain I was feeling made sense. And I felt better. And so I wanted more of what y'all had on tap. And my ability to appreciate uh, the depth of the church and the way that the church could help me to grow more deeply in my understanding of spirituality and my relationship with God and with Christ uh, was actually, I think, the way was paved by the world of AA. Sometimes people tend to think that AA and the church are at loggerheads or uh, on totally different pages or something like that. And I personally don't buy that at all. Um, I wrote a whole book about it. Um, but I also I think, especially for people who are part of the Episcopal Church, it's important to know that AA was born in the Episcopal Church. Everything about its roots, it didn't come from nowhere. It came from the Episcopal Church. The founder of AA, Bill W., was a member of Calvary Church in New York City on 20th and Park. And the rector there, Sam Shoemaker, uh, was the first man to ever write down the 12 steps. And that happened in the office of the rector of the Episcopal Church there. And um, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, the other two famous founders of AA, they always said Sam Shoemaker, this Episcopal clergyman, was the other co-founder of AA. People haven't paid much attention to that fact, but I'm interested in that. Not only that, Bill was a member of that church, obviously had a relationship, but Dr. Bob, who lived in Akron, guess what? Turns out he was a member of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Akron. And when Bill first met Dr. Bob, it all happened through connections in the Episcopal Church. And so it's important to understand that the wisdom of AA is, I think, um, something that grew directly out of the Episcopal Church. And so I always really encourage Episcopal churches especially to embrace and encourage this ministry that God gave birth to uh, in uh, sort of uh, the basements of their churches. And what you have in AA that's helpful for Christians and churches is a kind of case study of a much smaller and much newer and much less complex version of people gathering together in an attempt to grow and connect with God. Uh, and you also have this, what I think you all are familiar with the terminology, a very, very low anthropology. What you get in AA is a very low estimation of what it is that people can and can't do and the need for God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And then the way that this plays out through these meetings. And so um, I'm always very interested to learn from AA a little bit more about what it is that we're doing and why Christians have been doing this for uh, 2,000 years. And in AA, they, they typically say that there is an unbeatable combination, that if you combine the two of them, you uh, can almost feel ensured that you will be able to stay sober and that your life will begin to be kind of resurrected and take new form. And there are two parts to it. One is called the fellowship of AA. The other part is called the program of AA. When people talk about the program of AA, they're referring to that classic thing called the 12 steps. You've probably heard of the 12 steps. Those were born in AA. And um, the program is the working of this series of sort of spiritual disciplines that um, AA has made famous and that's changed lots and lots and lots of people's lives. 
But this other part, the fellowship, is equally important. And I used to think it was less important than I do now. The fellowship is the gathering together of people to talk about the program. And one in and of itself is pretty good. But when you combine the two, it's incredibly powerful and a kind of unbeatable um, combination. By the way, what's powerful a little bit about the fellowship that's hard to recreate in a church, but it's at least worth being aware of, is that in AA, fellowship is very different from friendship. I was once told the difference between fellowship and friendship is that fellowship is hanging out with people that you would never choose otherwise to hang out with. Friendship is hanging out with people you want to hang out with, you have stuff in common with. And so um, I think uh, that uh, basically the church is a nice depiction of fellowship. You sit in a pew and chances are you, you know some people and you see other people that you don't know. And based on what I'm talking about, I always think that it's very important to make an effort to introduce yourself to the people you don't know. Um, and it's more important that you do that than that you reconnect with the people that you're already close to. But it's hard to get lots of very, very different people in, in small groups from all kinds of different walks of life. But sometimes it happens, and surely as you dig a little below the surface, you discover that each of you has all kinds of different material that you bring to the table, which again is sort of what fellowship is about. But so um, in the world of small groups, I think that you have sort of three components instead of two. And these are actually all present in AA, but they are one fellowship, that's gathering together uh, and in the name of something bigger. And then two, you have study, whether it's reading a book or studying the Bible um, or uh, some kind, watching a video, some kind of a teaching. Uh, this is sort of the equivalent of the program that I've just been describing. There's some form of study. And then three, I think, in my opinion, it's ideal if there can be some prayer. This is one of the places where the church, I think, can school AA a little bit and where I found it to be hugely beneficial in my own life when I joined Christian small groups that after doing what I was familiar with, gathering together and talking about something bigger than ourselves, the program, then there was this time where people would pray for each other. And I um, think that that third ingredient is one of the Maybe the most important ingredient. That's hugely shaped my own life and the lives of lots of people I know. I had a very special experience last night. I got to attend um, Kelly and Charlie Norwood and Meg and Clay's small group with uh, Andrew and Lauren and a bunch of other wonderful folks. So I actually got to experience an Advent small group last night, and it was food for the soul. It was so special to be a part of that, to be welcomed in with open arms, to just meet neat people, um, all of whom were, you know, wouldn't be anywhere else, and uh, and were taking an interest in each other. And I saw the magic that makes a small group gathering so much more profound than just a dinner party or a cocktail party. And um, you know, we gathered in the name of something bigger than ourselves. And initially, it was just socializing, and then dinner, and that was great, and that set the stage. And then we talked about, I gave a little presentation. I talked a little bit about, I think, something bigger. And then after that, 
I asked everybody to sort of go around and just tell me a little bit about who they were and a little bit about what they got out of their small group involvement. And um, it was an amazing thing, uh, listening to each person describe what it was that they so valued about um, their involvement in a small group. And it wasn't the same thing over and over again. It was, it was different things. But at the same time, one person would say something that another person hadn't said, and everybody would be nodding. And it was really cool. Um, and then the best thing happened. One of the members of the group completely opened up about something very, very, very heavy and very, very difficult. And that was the moment when our hearts went out we were all praying in our heads, I'm sure, and God was so close, and the meaning and the real purpose of what this is all about was born, and I thought, gosh, it's just an amazing thing to see God at work in this simple and practical uh, way, when you just gather people together in the name of God, talk a little bit about him, and then open it up. And one of the members of that group, Katie B., made a comment. She said that she grew up in the church, she knew the liturgy by heart, but it wasn't until she got involved in a small group that she discovered um, that Sunday morning could be a part of her everyday life. And that, that was totally true of my experience, and that's, again, the sharpening of the axe. That's why I think it's so important to be involved in a small group is because it brings everything that we believe in to life in a way that is not contained and detached from every other aspect of our life. It basically helps us to put the tires to the pavement in our life in a way that is, uh, I think, really moving. And um, so there's sort of the fellowship part. There is the study part, which is something bigger. And I think people desperately need always in their life to have some exposure to something that is bigger than themselves. And that is what we do when we open our lives up to the Word of God. When we, even when we just spend time, devotional time in the morning or in the evening or anything like that, the moment you, you try to sort of pause and stop thinking about you and say, what is God thinking? What is God thinking about me? It's a total reorientation of our perspective. And, um, and so the court of magic ingredients, as I see it, is the fellowship makes you a part of something that's not just you. You've spent all day thinking about you. Enough. Think about them. Listen to the pain this one person is in and feel for them and pray for them and care about them and think about what you can do for that person. And then we expose ourselves to something bigger than all of us, which is God. And that is where the Bible or something from the outside is so absolutely important. And then third, we pray, which is basically an opportunity to treat God like he is actually real and that he is actually active in our lives and that he makes a difference and that he changes things and that he's really the protagonist in each of our stories. It's a total reorientation, I hope you can see. Um, I also wanna say that uh, for me it was especially powerful to see Andrew and Lauren sitting there in the midst, participating 
just like anybody else, because they are just like anybody else. And this is one of the wonderful things that Andrew's doing, is just having a regular old Joe involvement in the parish, in the life of the parish, in the way the parishioners have it. There was no distinction between the dean and parishioner last night. There was just a person before God. And that is, I think, a really wonderful thing that your dean is doing. And let me just say, I was in a small group with him in seminary in both England and in Pennsylvania. And uh, I had um, the experience yesterday of having Andrew pray for me yesterday, which was a very powerful thing for me, Um, not because he's the dean and he's got great prayers, but because he's prayed for me at so many points in my life. And that's always so meaningful, just like it is for me to see, say, Jane and and Robin and people who have prayed for me for years and years, and Judy and Nick, who practically raised me. And um, so um, let me tell you a little bit more about AA. Just food for thought. Maybe this will be helpful. Take what you need and leave the rest. But in AA, one of the crucial ingredients, and I think this is very important to the life of a small group, um, and it's, it's uh, I think, really crucial, is testimony. The role of what we call testimony. People sharing their personal experience. Um, that is what where the magic is often found. That is, I think... Um, totally crucial. And in AA, one of the things is when a person shares their experience, nobody's allowed to offer feedback. They just listen. And if you have something to say or bring something to the surface for you, you're only allowed and encouraged to share your experience. And I think that experience sometimes gets a bad rap in the world of Christian theology in a way that is uh, unfortunate. And I uh, would rather see more experience talked about in the Christian life rather than less out of fear that we'll start to eisegete and interpret things for ourselves. So I think what you get when you have testimony is um, you basically get vulnerability. And vulnerability takes great courage. And it is also, I think, uh, where grace comes in. And you know this in your own life. When you are vulnerable with God, um, you pray more honestly. When you are low and you walk into church, you hear something. It's like, oh, this Sunday it was, it was handcrafted just for me. I can't believe that was the reading this week. right? And, and that's exactly what happens, I think, when people sort of let down their hair and are vulnerable with each other. And it's a, 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 a thing that we are only able to do because we believe in God and because we believe that that actually serves an important purpose of um, allowing grace to seep into the fissures of our lives. Um, something that's uh, also crucial about people sharing their experiences, if you actually care about them, then you want their relationship with God to grow and to deepen. And there is no better way to do that than by allowing people to give voice to their apprehensions. This is totally crucial. If you can't tell somebody about your hesitations, about um, the person you're married to, or about um, your relationship with God, you hold on to them. I talk about them they're like they're hairballs. And everybody has a hairball. And everybody needs to cough up their hairballs. And what happens? A hairball keeps you, a cat, from being able to digest any new food until the hairball has been coughed up. And so I think that basically framing the conversation using the word of God or something that is tied to the gospel to enable people to then describe their experience and preferably cough up some of their hairballs 
uh, is an incredibly powerful and helpful thing. There's a guy, Nicky Gumbel, the founder of Alpha. You may have heard of him in England. He says, people don't want to hear what you think until you first heard what they think. And um, you're going to have people in your small group talk, and they're going to, you're going to totally disagree with them. And they're going to say crazy stuff. And if you don't have that, there's a problem. And that is absolutely essential. And unless you have that, there won't actually be a growing together. And there won't actually be an ongoing dialectical growth going on. And then when they cough up their hairball, it's not now time to reassert proper doctrine so that they understand. That's where you, you, what do you do? You pray. And so, um, I, in my own experience, how do I know when I need to share something in an AA meeting? Typically, when somebody tells you about their experience and you relate to it, what do you do? You freely associate. You say, I've experienced that. And then you share your example of that experience. Well, that for me is if what I am hearing in an AA meeting being shared is material that I can relate to, then I know that's a sign that I don't need to say a word. What I would be offering into the pot has already been offered. I know I need to say something if what I'm thinking hasn't been said. If nobody's saying the thing that immediately sprung to my mind when we read this passage. That's when you can actually make, I think, a really valuable contribution. So that might be helpful um, in discussions or things like that. Don't so much echo as um, see if there's a place where God has spoken to you in a different way and bring that into the conversation. I also want to say that sometimes in AA, people talk about good meetings and bad meetings. And you may find this, that small group tonight wasn't as good as it was last. Last week was amazing. This week was okay. You know, or have you ever had any of that? Or, or I used to be in a small group that was great. Now I'm in an okay one. And um, sometimes in AA, people will say, I only go to that. I don't like, that's a bad meeting. It's a good meeting, you know, all that. And of course, there's taste and everything. And you won't go somewhere that you really hate. But... Um, I also think that that distinction of good and bad small group is one that the world of faith just completely blows out of the water. Those lines are very, very, very blurry. And so I used to think the meetings I liked were the ones where they did what I'd like to do in AA and they said what I believe in in AA and where people are basically doing the program the way I think it should be done. Where, In other words, you could say in Christian terms, I like their doctrine or I'm, uh, I sort of am in agreement with the general ethos of the guiding principles of the group. Well, the longer I stayed sober and got involved in AA, the more I started to, to find that um, actually uh, I like bad meetings now better than good meetings. And this is because why? I have more to contribute. I have more to offer because I have different experience. If, if a group is doing things in a different way, I can at least voice my, my version of things and conceivably have a bigger impact. And, um, you know, when you start to think about things in terms of how you're being of service rather than how you're getting stuff out of something, it's a completely different and reorienting way of thinking about things. And so if you are in a bad small group, you're probably in a good small group. And if um, you think you've had a bad night at small group, I 
would be surprised if that in the long haul turns out to be true. And how often have you experienced in your life something that didn't seem like a big deal, turned out to be immense, you went somewhere, you met somebody, next thing you know, your wife's working for them and you and your daughter's marrying their son. Or, I mean, just have you ever experienced, you know, where the thing you didn't think was at all significant? God is constantly at work in that way. And so I like to sort of take the thinking about calculating how effective things are and how well things are going a little bit off the table. Don't dig up the plant every week to see if the roots are growing. Just show up. Do and represent and stand for the principles you believe in, which are, I think, fellowship, something bigger than you, the word of God or something related, and um, prayer that is tied to other people's experience and Christian fellowship. And don't worry so much about whether or not it's working or whether or not it's going well. Let God handle that. My experience has been that um, that actually tends to be a much more effective way to view things. I think that the importance of prayer requests in a small group, to my way of thinking, is essential. This is a time when people are given the opportunity to sort of say, this week, blank. And uh, I don't know um, if you all do that or not at the Advent typically, and I know each group's a little different, has their own ways of doing things, and I think it's good that that's the case, and it's not completely streamlined, that every group is not held to certain, I, I hope there's some organic, one group's a little different from the next. I was hearing the amazing way that Meg's group schedules things. Do you know what they do? Does everybody do this? The, 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 girl, the couples, girls, couples, guys, is that something that you all just invented at the Advent? That is so brilliant. Anyway, they have their method, and it seems to be working really well. Um, and uh, one person might have had a beer. Woo-hoo-hoo. I thought that was awesome. Okay, um, so uh, my point is that every group should be a little different. Um, Another thing, uh, though, is that prayer requests are great only when they're honest. And so in a, I used to be a member of a small group, and we used to say, You're not, we're not allowed to pray for anybody who's not immediate family. But let me just add a caveat. If it's a brand new member, they're totally new. Their first week of prayer requests is going to be their friend's uncle's cat. And their, you know, their peace in the Middle East. And in that week... Just trust them. Let them get to the point where they can be honest with you. But model that yourselves. What's really going on? And um, and then allow somebody else to pray for you about it. Now, I do want to say that I think it's very important that prayer requests not be met with... I don't like the idea of small groups. And this, again, these are my opinions. Just if you disagree, then that's fine. And you don't have to take any of this to heart. But I personally think that... Uh, Small groups are not meant to be places where we are, as Christian brothers and sisters, sorting each other out. This is not a place where we are um, helping people to make decisions. We are encouraging people to ask God to help them make decisions and walking alongside of them as we trust God to guide them. That's a very different thing. And um, here are some words from the book Grace and Practice. My father wrote, your former dean, uh, on this matter. And I think these are wise words. You're probably familiar with them. But this comes from a section on pastoral care in that book. And it's exactly what I'm saying. He says, the main feature of pastoral care rooted in grace is non-proactivity. This is another way of saying that the main feature of pastoral care rooted in grace is passivity. This means that pastoral care from grace consists mostly of listening and watching. This means that the pastoral response is always the response of listening. 
and passive reception. I think of it like God is here in this room and and this person in telling us is actually sharing it with God. And um, and we sit and we uh, pray and listen and model that kind of uh, sort of idea. So he says, it is not the response of trying to fix things. Grace never tries to fix, but trusts God to do this. Grace listens. In caring for people in the setting of a local church, the idea is first to relax control and the idea of control. No more micromanaging. I'm sure you've experienced this. You've been all worried. You tried to make it go well, and then you finally got frustrated, or didn't, and you let go of the reins a little bit on your group, and then, then it got good. Then God showed up in a way that you couldn't believe, or you started doing this, and you couldn't believe every week was great suddenly. No more micromanaging. The relaxation of control makes room for the Holy Spirit to work. Work that only takes place in the vacuum provided by the absence of human control. It is the fruit of the Spirit to create love where there was resentment and creativity where there was blockage. Or you could say, we basically treat God as though he's actually real. There's a saying, we are the feet and hands of God. Have you ever heard that? Well, this is an idea that totally rejects that. It says, no, God is actually very capable of working independently of your hands, feet, and mouth. Thank you very much. So shut up and get out of the way. Uh, duck because it's time to let God smack that person and not your job to do it and stop butting in on their conversation and realize that it's a privilege to be uh, getting to hear what's really going on with them because you are being called to pray for them, not to fix them. Um, so um, let me give you a, a little story or two that relate to some of this. This is a, a, a story that comes from um, a small group that I used to be in uh, in New York City. When I lived in New York City many years ago, I was part of a small Bible study. It's about two years after I moved on from the Advent. Um, at the end of our time together each week, we would say a few prayers for each other. Sound familiar? One of our members, Tom, offered the same prayer request every week. He said he hated his job and he wanted us to pray that God would give him a new one. So we did this. Every week, one of us would remind God that Tom was miserable in his work, and then we would ask him to give Tom a new job. This went on for two years, until one day a new guy joined our group. When it came time for prayer requests, this friend Dan offered to pray. We explained how Tom, and if, by the way, you know, usually the really needy person can go on and on and on and on, and so you might on the front end just say, each person's prayer, you get three minutes. You know, just something to sort of frame it a little bit. And then if they need to go a little over, that's fine. But then when you sort of shut them up, that's also fine. Um, we explained how Tom hates his job and how every week we ask God to give Tom a new job. Dan then proceeded to pray the most audacious prayer. He said, Dear Lord, we thank you for Tom's current job. Help him to accept that this is the place you currently have chosen for him. Show him how he can be helpful there. And if it be your will, Provide him with a new opportunity when the time is right. Amen. We were flabbergasted, but Dan was right on the money. A few weeks later, Tom told us that he received a frantic call from his boss one evening, that he desperately needed Tom's help with a last-minute presentation. 
Tom showed up to bail his boss out, and the two worked late into the light together, alone in the office. At the end of the evening, the man thanked him sincerely. Then he proceeded to open up to Tom about some personal concerns which had been eating away at him. Tom was able to empathize and listen. He had been given an opportunity to convey compassion to a guy who was in need of it. Tom felt in some weird way that this had been an answer to Dan's prayer. What's more, a few months later, Tom was offered a new job and he was able to move out of the stagnant situation. So that's just one little story from my own experience of um, prayer requests and how special and essential I think they are. Also, if you feel like somebody is praying for you, it helps. Even if they don't actually pray. I mean, I I don't know. I I had a friend, I I texted him this morning, said, I'm I'm preaching this morning. And uh, if you think to say a prayer that it goes well. You know, and then when I got into the pulpit, Craig prayed for me right before. He said, God, we know you go before John. And then I was able to totally relax because I felt that my proper perspective had been restored thanks to prayer and that people were lifting me up. It's so crucial in life. It's one of the simple, basic, practical components of the Christian life that makes all the difference. Um, Let me just say, here's something that my dad, well, we don't need to get, he basically just says, if you maintain this approach, it really, really works. Uh, He says, there is an important concluding unscientific postscript. He said, it works. The theology of grace works. It relieves people of burdens and births a new view of their future. This is what small groups are really about. It creates the spontaneous and unselfconscious response of works of love. It engenders what the law demands. I have seen it happen repeatedly for 30 years at a downtown church in the East Village of New York City, in a John Cheever-esque parish in the high suburbs of that city, in a Sea Island parish on the coast of South Carolina, in a traditional parish in Birmingham, Alabama. In all of these churches, I have seen grace work. In NYC, in Westchester County, the preaching of this message caused rapid long-term growth. On the Sea Island, it caused initial quakes and then settled in for sustained steady growth. In Birmingham, it created massive growth, both in numbers and in money. Grace applied in the pulpit and in pastoral care and in small groups brings about that which it intends. Here is the maxim. Grace applied will grow your church. Grace will grant to your church the joy and humor and love and generosity. Law, on the other hand, that's the straightening people out, telling them, giving them advice. Law, on the other hand, will clip your wings and will add insult to injury and and amount to a declining situation. It will create resentment, sourness, self-absorption, and penury. For parish life, that is a maxim of this theology. And y'all are the outworking still of those words. Um, Let me share with you now two other just little stories of this kind of material at play in the life of AA. This is, I think, a guy who modeled something that y'all do a good job of modeling in your groups, I'm sure. It's the story of an old-timer from Atlanta named Dick A. and his first encounter with a newcomer in the program of AA. Actually, Dick A. is the the newcomer. Um, But just think for a moment about the newcomer in your group, the person with the crazy problem, the person who it's so obvious that they are on the wrong track. 
So I walked up to a payphone and I dialed the number for AA. I started crying, saying, I'm an alcoholic. Instead of rejecting me, she said, just a minute. You wait right there. And they sent out a guy named Ed. I actually resisted listening to him for a while because I thought he wasn't hip like me. I knew that I was just down on my luck. Ed, on the other hand, looked like he'd never had any luck in the first place. But then I saw his eyes. He did what it talks about in the big book. He relived the horrors of his past with me. He told me about himself. And he did something that I learned a great lesson from. He said, what do you do? And I started crying. I said, I drink. I think I'm an alcoholic. But he cut me off and said, no. What did you do for a living before drinking got the better of you? And I told him about my writing. He actually recognized some of the things I'd written. And he said, that's great stuff. You're very talented. God must really have something in mind for you. Then I just broke down and started crying because no one had said anything kind or hopeful to me in years. And if he hadn't done that, I would not be here sober today. He'd read the big book and he understood that we don't get anyone sober or into recovery by being tough on him. But we get people here by unconditional love. They're already hurt. They've already been through enough hell. We don't need to add to it. We need to let them know that there's a place where there's hope. And that's what Ed did for me. After we'd talked for a little while, Ed put me into his new Pinto to get me something to drink so that he could help me to taper off the booze because I was now starting to vibrate. He realized I was going into DTs because he had worked with wet drunks before. He asked, are you going to be okay? I'm just going to stop here for one moment and get some money so that we can get you on track. He went out to the ATM machine. It was a hot day in Atlanta, June 8th, 1977. So he goes up to the machine to get his $20 or whatever. And before he can get back to the car, I couldn't get the door open because my hands were rattling so much and I had thrown up all down the inside of his new Pinto. And the only thing that he did when he opened the door and saw what had happened was he put his arm around me. He said, it's going to be okay. If he had been critical of me, I wouldn't be here tonight. But Ed knew that we don't have new cars, new jobs, or new lives unless we're willing to work with another. And he loved me, and he cared for me, and he took me to a place where I could weather the withdrawals. Now that's the AA version of exactly what in fact you are doing every time you gather together and listen to each other and pray for each other and model the grace of God that is the crucial ingredient in life. One last little thing I'll just tell you. <coughs> um, there was a member of this parish for 10 years who had a notorious reputation for killing small groups. Unintentionally, he would show up in the group and it would just fizzle out. Maybe you know him. His name's Josh Corrigan. And uh, do you remember him? Well, Josh and I go way, way, way back. And um, he said to me not long ago, he said, you know, it's so funny, I would... Uh, I had a terrible track record at the Advent with small groups. He tried many. <coughs> well, he moved to Charleston. Thanks a lot, y'all. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, and you gave your small group problem to us. And I, I just want you to know um, that he uh, is now the main member I lean upon to help me lead my own small group in Birmingham, I mean in Charleston. And he's doing a wonderful job. He's gotten very involved in our church, too. And in fact, the rector recently tried to hire him. Uh, but Josh has finally figured it out by God's grace. 
uh, the whole small group thing. And so um, even your biggest, you know, sort of uh, guy with a, with a bumpy road in the, the small groups ministry has ended up being an absolutely crucial small group minister in the life of the church. And uh, anyway, that's the fruit of your ministry, too. So um, I guess that's all I really have. Um, are there any questions or things you all would like to discuss or talk about or that this has brought to the surface that you think would be helpful? But anything. Yeah, well, so I, I, uh, I'm a DJ on the side. I've been doing that since before uh, I ever thought, started thinking about going into the ordained ministry. And I have uh, a monthly night where I play um, with another fellow DJ um, at a bar in Charleston called the Faculty Lounge. It's sort of like a hip kind of bar slash club. And uh, I've been doing that for about six years. When I first moved to Charleston, I played out at a restaurant every single Friday night for a little extra money. And um, I'm still a big fan of music and all of that. Um, Tay, the guy I DJ with, also happens to be the son of an Episcopal minister, and we call our night the Episco Disco. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to do this in uh, New York City in a few weeks at the next Mockingbird Conference. And I'm looking forward to it. So anyway, one of the things I collect is obscure, offbeat weird Christian music from the late 1970s and early 1980s. Did you know that there was an evangelical synth-pop movement in the center of Sweden in 1982 through 1984, the Bible Belt of Sweden? You probably haven't heard a lot of good Christian Swedish synth-pop from 1982. Well, I have the corner on the market. Did you know there was an Austrian band called Ila Craig who were um, hired by the Catholic Church to record an entire Prague mass in um, Austria in 1979. Their version of the Nicene Creed will totally change the way you think about the creed. It's my personal favorite. I have that kind of stuff too. And, and all other weirdness. So anyway, I, I still get into it. And for me, there's a real... I don't differentiate too much between the John who's a priest and the John who's a DJ and the when I'm on and when I'm off. And I was talking to Matt Schneider about this yesterday and he was just saying... You know, the lines between when I'm doing ministry and when I'm not are totally blurry, and that's how I like it. And that's how, if, you're, if you like what you do for a living, you're, that's not a problem. It's, you don't have to worry too much about boundaries. Anyway, anything else unrelated to music? John, yes. I have a question. I know you said um, kind of as the leader model, what you're doing in terms of your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. People have to know that there's, they're not going to be judged, yeah. they're not going to be criticized, and that it's a safe place. And whatever you can do to help, I think, bring that about makes a difference. And then to see other people doing it. There's a, a preacher I like. A lot of people have a lot of different feelings about her. She's a friend named Nadia Boltz Weber, who's out in Denver. And she says that she um, uses the, the effort, I'll go first model of ministry, where she says, I'll jump out and get hit by the bus of the law in order to see the gospel give me new life first, in order to show the other congregation members that it's safe to do so. And so it is hard, 
Uh, I like when Brene Brown says that vulnerability is the thing in the world that takes the most courage. And you say that you have a hard time doing it, but Judy, you are so good at doing it. I, I, yeah. I just think you just want to be talking about reality. Can we get rid of spiritual terminology? Can we stop talking about, you know, stuff that's not really what we're thinking about when we're lying in bed at night and when we're stuck in traffic and ruminating on some issue? Can we please make this thing practical for a change? And that's what vulnerability really is, I think, about and designed to do. Yes, Meg. That's wonderful. I think that's great. I just sort of like the idea that in my own life, I try not to have any secrets. And the people in my small group or my, my closest friends, somebody, I don't tell everybody, uh, I don't tell everybody everything, but I try to tell somebody everything. Or at least just, I, I like to, this idea that um, there's a line, you're only as sick as your secrets, that they say in AA. And, and in my experience, when I bring the darkness into the light, uh, that, um, I just, it's like I become unblocked. And so, and the way I do that, my, I sort of operate on the principle, if you really want to tell something to God, make sure you've told it to another person. That's the sort of basic idea in AA is that you can't really tell something to God fully in the sense that you are humbled by it unless you brought another person in on it. I think you'll find it's harder to tell somebody about this stuff than to pray on your own. Um, but it's so much more powerful. So that's sort of the principle I operate. But it's not like, oh, so you've got something and you haven't shared it and it's been three days, um, your, li- your life's going to fall apart or anything like that. But it's just a sort of general guiding dictum that I sort of value. And I've found that for me, it makes it so much easier to move around in the world smoothly. I guess to follow up what Judy says, as leaders, I think it's incumbent upon ourselves to if we say we aren't desperate, we deceive ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, first John thing that we're all desperate, and that we all uh, need something outside of ourselves. If you say, mm-hmm. ideally, that we can share with another person, because uh, if you say vulnerability, humility, uh, sharing with another, I think confession that we're all desperate. It's just we're modeling something that is so deeply Christian and so countercultural, especially in American culture, where we are told that it's all about us fixing our problems, bearing our burdens, making it happen, and pushing through. And when you do what we've just been talking about, bring other people in, humble yourself, uh, get vulnerable, ask for God to be the maker or breaker of the situation. It is a totally different way of doing life that I think is much more effective. Um, I'll share with you another story of a, the hardest circumstance I ever faced with a sponsee whose life was totally out of whack. And the time when I was sort of given the ability to sort of model what I've been talking about. Um, and this just it might be helpful. This was a sponsor. It's actually me, my experience, with a guy I worked with many years ago in New York City. 
my faith was really put to the test when this, with this one kid I sponsored. He started dating a girl who was brand new in the program when he was only six months sober. It's the kind of thing that tends to be a recipe for disaster. That's classic taboo material on about every level in the world of AA. They had a brief honeymoon period and ended up moving in together. It was not long after that that the girl started drinking again. She spiraled quickly into a deep mire of depression and alcoholism. And my sponsee became her sole caregiver, arguably her enabler. Everyone knew the situation was terrible, that his sobriety hung in the balance and that he was getting in the way of her hitting bottom, thereby prolonging her agony. We all used to get together after meetings and talk about their terrible situation and how he needed to get out of there pronto and how it was crazy. But my job as his sponsor was not to tell him what to do. It was to point him to God and encourage him to seek God's guidance in all things. So we would get together each week for coffee and I'd ask how things were going. The story was always bad and it took huge amounts of self-restraint for me to not tell him to just get the hell out of there. But I would always ask the following question as was and is my duty as a sponsor. Are you praying about it? To my disappointment, his answer was always yes. One day, after months of this awfulness, I reached the end of my fuse and I decided to try to steer him a bit. I asked him, which decision would require more faith from you to stay with her or to leave her? I couldn't believe his answer, definitely to stay with her. After that, I just told him to keep praying. So get this, one day he showed up for coffee with news. She went to an AA meeting by herself. Next thing you know, she's got a sponsor. She's going to tons of AA meetings. She's working the steps, logging in a string of days of continuous sobriety. Nine months go by and the girl is still sober, super involved, completely unlike her first go round in the program. Soon, the couple gets engaged. Two years later, they're married, both sober and happy and they own and run a bar together in Brooklyn. <laughs> and she always cites how grateful she is that he weathered that terrible time with her without leaving. That's what she talked about at her rehearsal dinner. As it turns out, none of us knew better than God. So I hope that's helpful. I shared that once in an AA meeting. That's a true story. And an old timer got furious at me and said, well, that's got to be the most harebrained single exception anomaly in the history of AA. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Thanks. My own, my own thinking about vulnerability, by the way, is that you don't do it just to do it. It makes people uncomfortable. But you don't ever hesitate to do it if you think it will be helpful. So I don't go around telling everybody I'm in AA. There are lots of members of my congregation who have no idea. I share it when I think it will be helpful. And so that's when you're vulnerable, is to the extent that you think putting yourself out there might put the person at ease and enable a real conversation or just plant a seed. The goal is not to go around telling everybody your dirty laundry. 
and so that nobody will call you back when you call them. Right? You see the difference? Okay, I just want to make sure that's clear. All right. Sure, let's say a prayer. Um, Lord, the small group ministry at the Advent is such a big deal. It has made such a difference in so many lives. It has brought together thousands of people in the last 20 years here in Birmingham. I hate to think how many ripples have extended uh, your reach into the world through the simple, down-to-earth, practical, not magical gathering together of fellowship, study, and prayer. I pray that you'd continue to bless each of these groups, inspire these leaders. It's tireless, hard work, and uh, I thank you for their commitment. Please uh, give them a sense of fruit being born from this uh, sacrifice that they are making for the sake of your kingdom. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.